Above the western entrance to the Peace Tower on Ottawa's Parliament Hill, there's an inscription that reads, Where there is no vision, the people shall perish. And over the next hour on The Current, we're putting that maxim to the test. This year's election campaign trail has been littered with promises of tax cuts, improved child care, and tackling government corruption. But we're going to discuss whether policy announcements can add up to a grand vision for Canada, or if we are indeed doomed to perish. In a moment, we'll head out on a search for vision from the peripheries of the campaign trail, and we've assembled a panel to help us craft what role vision should be playing in Canada's political landscape. Then we'll go to Hollywood, North and South, and to the business world to see if those worlds can help infuse our politics with potency. But first, just so we know what we're talking about, here's a look back at some politicians upon whom historians have bestowed the honor a visionary. An energetic country of ours can become a model of the just society in which every citizen will enjoy his fundamental rights and in which every individual will find fulfillment. For me, that is Canada. C'est ça, le Canada, pour moi. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you Ask what you can do for your country. In Ontario, real change has a name. Mike Harris. Only Harris has a serious plan that'll cut income taxes to create good jobs. And only Harris will require able-bodied welfare recipients to work for their benefits. I will cut taxes to create good jobs in Ontario. Don't get cynical. Uh, don't get cynical because look at yourselves and what you were willing to do and recognize that there are millions and millions of Americans out there that want what you want, that want it to be that way, that want it to be a shining city on a hill. I think that medical care is so important that it ought not to have a price tag on it. I think that we've come to the place where medical care like education ought to be available to every citizen irrespective of their financial state. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. But I have a dream today. Well, we were listening to the voices of John F. Kennedy, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, Mike Harris, Ronald Reagan, Tommy Douglas, and Martin Luther King. Political visionaries spanning the political spectrum. To take a look at where the vision fits or doesn't fit in this year's election campaign, we turned to John Ibbotson, political affairs columnist for the Globe and Mail, and the author of a book on Canadian politics called The Polite Revolution, Perfecting the Canadian Dream. The 39th general election has all sorts of big ideas in it. We're being asked to make very clear policy choices between a conservative party that would cut the GST, a liberal party that would cut income taxes, and a new democratic party that would not cut taxes at all. Child care is a major issue, with the liberals arguing that government should subsidize daycare spaces, while conservatives counter that parents should be able to spend daycare grants as they see fit. The conservatives want to transfer government surpluses to the provinces. The liberals want to retain the status quo, while the Bloc Québécois wants to terminate the country entirely. These are all big, needy ideas. And yet there is this disquiet among many of us, an uneasy sense that Canadian elections have become horse races and photo ops and talking heads, that at a time when the country is evolving before our eyes, 
Political leaders lack what pundits call vision, a word that means, I don't know what I mean, so I'll say vision instead. Do our political leaders lack a vision, or better yet, competing visions about what Canada should be in the 21st century? Visions that could compare with Medicare, bilingualism, multiculturalism, a homemade constitution, free trade, the essence, for better or worse, of the Canada we live in today. Have elections become nothing more than wrangles over the economic efficiency of consumption versus payroll taxes? Worse, are election campaigns now nothing more than what the Cassandras have long feared they would become? Competitions among image surgeons with mock turtlenecks contending with the South Beach diet? There is a vacuum of ideas within this campaign. There are big issues out there not getting covered. Issues that go beyond promises of paved roads or tax credits. The inability of any political party to put down strong roots in every region of the country reflects the worsening drift of the four solitudes, English Centre, French Centre, Atlantic and West, into separate and distinct political spaces. Ottawa obsesses over transferring wealth vertically through taxes and horizontally through transfers, robbing the provinces of their fiscal resources they need to do their jobs. Cities decay while billions are frittered away trying to reverse, or at least retard, the great migration from rural to urban. Canada's Aboriginal population continues to face severe challenges. Foreign policy is a mess. Our defenses are dangerously weak. The vital Canada-U.S. relationship is strained. Finally, the political institutions of the state itself are outmoded, leaving voters frustrated and increasingly inclined not to vote at all. But perhaps it doesn't matter. Most voters on January 23rd won't cast a ballot based on which party has a more robust foreign policy platform or which will accelerate or retard the drift to asymmetrical federalism. Because like it or not, elections are finally not about vision. They are about feelings, or even about one specific feeling. Who do you trust? Voters are wise. They look into the eyes of the politician talking at them and they ask themselves, what do I feel about this person? Am I willing to trust him with my federal government? If not, then who can I trust? None of them? All right then, which one do I distrust least? And when that voter goes into a booth to cast a ballot, this is the only thing in her head. Which leaves us, perhaps, with one final question. Do we even need a new vision for Canada at all? That is John Ibbotson. He is the political affairs columnist for the Globe and Mail. He's also the author of The Polite Revolution, Perfecting the Canadian Dream. Okay, so let's discuss this vision thing. I have three guests ready to jump in. Adam DeFala is a former member of the National Post's editorial board. He is the co-author of Rescuing Canada's Right, and he is in Quebec City. Judy Rebick is the publisher of Rabble.ca, and she holds the Sam Gindin Chair in Social Justice and Democracy at Ryerson University. She is in our Toronto studio, and sitting next to her is Akash Maharaj, former National Policy Chair for the Liberal Party of Canada. Welcome, all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. I want to see if we can start where John Ibbotson left off. Judy Rebick, do Canadians need a vision from their political leaders? Oh, I think, I think we need a vision, not just Canadians. I think we need a new vision on a worldwide basis of politics. I think that we see all around the world a, a grave crisis of democracy and um, that politics isn't working for people anymore. And so I think that the right-wing revolution, which I think Reagan and Thatcher were the visionaries for that right-wing revolution that we're still, in my view, suffering for today, um, has failed. It's failed to deliver the goods, and that's why uh, there's a need to rescue the right uh, for those who support it. And I think the left has failed as well. Uh, you know, the old vision of socialism is discredited. Social democracy, I think, is discredited. So I think we need... Uh, a new vision, or we do face, I love that, doomed to perish. Adam DeFala, do you agree? 
I, I do somewhat, and, and, and to Judy's point on um, the rightward uh, shift in, in politics around the world, I think that if we can bring it back to Canada for a second, there's been a real uh, conglomeration uh, around the centre uh, in our national politics, and we're really seeing that in this in this federal election. And I think the reason for that is is that uh, times are fairly good in Canada. The economy is strong. Uh, people are generally okay. It may not be perfect, but uh, there's sort of an I'm okay, Jack uh, attitude in the country right now, and I think that's why everyone is sort of trying to run the least offensive uh, campaign possible. Uh, all three major parties, four if you include the bloc, and that's why you're not really seeing a lot of talk of vision. Uh, it's just sort of little piecemeal policy announcements that are slightly different from the other party. And uh, everyone's basically offering the same thing. Well, what constitutes the vision, Adam? The, the, for me, it's something that's based on uh, some bedrock core values and principles. And the, the policies that are uh, part of that vision all come out of that. They all flow from a, a, a set of values, and I think that's what we're, we're sort of missing. And we talk a lot about that in our book, uh, Rescuing Canada's Right, that it's okay to, to you know, offer these, as I said, piecemeal policies, but if it's not part of a package that can all sort of be tied together with bedrock values, it's not a vision. Akash Maharaj, Paul Martin and the Liberals insist they have a vision for Canada. Uh, Mr. Martin talks about values a lot, and he says what he loves about this country. What do you think? I think certainly there is a, a vision that has, has been brought to bear by, by the Liberal Party and by Paul Martin, and indeed also by Stephen Harper and the Conservative Party. Would I call it a vision in the grand, for either of those, those men, uh, a vision in the grand scheme of things, of the ilk that was spoken to by the people you quoted earlier? No, and I think that's, that's unfortunate. I think we definitely do need a vision for politics in Canada, for Canada especially, um, although as Canadians we tend to be a pathologically self-effacing population, it's important to remember that unlike old world countries that are bound together by a common ethnicity, a common language, a common set of geographic or his historical parameters, Canada came into being 139 years ago as a tremendous leap of political faith. Given the vastness of our land and the sparseness of our population, the incredible diversity from coast to coast to coast, we are a country that exists very much in the teeth of the worst conspiracies of man and nature. But we exist because, and only because, we are a political federation of people defined by a set of, set of political values and a vision of a country where people are stronger together, not in spite of their differences, but precisely because of their differences. And at a time when, whenever Canadians lose faith in the political process, they are in a very real way losing faith in the national enterprise itself. Vision matters, and it matters more than just because of who gets elected at any particular election or who gets the winning soundbite. It matters because it is the lifeblood of a postmodern state like Canada. You have worked on policy for the Liberal Party. What prevents policy from becoming a vision? I think that for policy, it should be a manifestation of vision. That is to say, vision is at its heart a sense of, this may sound overly dramatic, but a sense of destiny, a sense of where you want to take the country. And policies are the means towards that end. Um, some, this election, I think, has thus far, far been an improvement over the last election, the 2004 election, was little more than an unedifying spectacle of political leaders trying to convince the country that the other leaders were the greater scoundrel, whereas at least in this election people are debating different, um, different propositions about things like childcare, tax cuts and the like. But to a certain extent this can also be a placebo, a barrage of uh, policy ideas that aren't connected by a coherent vision of the public good 
are simply can, can be just as much smoke and mirrors as um, uh, an empty clash of personality. Judy, how do we how do we know when we're hearing or seeing a vision and not just a well? I think point? the I think the what a vision does is inspire people. The last quote you gave was Martin Luther King. I have a dream, and it, with that vision, he inspired a whole you know a whole population of people who had been so marginalized and oppressed in the United States. There's a, a visionary today in the black community in the United States called Van Jones, and he in his critique of the left, he says Martin Luther King didn't become famous saying I have a complaint. <laughs> and so, and so, and I think that's an important um, notion that politics has become so much about complaining about mm-hmm. what you don't like about the other guy, about um, you know this uh, what 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 Adam talked about, this slight adjustment over the other one. You know, I'll spend a little more in Medicare, and you know this debate on taxes is ridiculous between the liberals. There's no real debate between the liberals and conservatives about whether to cut income tax or GST. It's just a it's just a mechanism for the election. Mm-hmm. So I think what vision is about, especially at the political level, is about inspiring people. It's a dream mm-hmm. that the world can be different uh, than it is. It's I, I agree with, with that, Judy, and, and I would add, uh, we, we've referenced now a couple of times the, the quotes at the beginning of the show, and I think what they highlight, what those people highlight is just that, it's people. Vision is about people, and it's about leadership. It's about putting a set of ideas out there and asking people to follow. And I think there's really two types of people that get involved in politics. There are those who are motivated by ideas, like the people that you played quotes from, the Reagans, uh, the Mike Harris's, the Tommy Douglases, and there's another set of people who are just in it more for the game, for the nitty-gritty of politics, for attaining power. And uh, on the federal scene today, uh, I would say Mr. Martin is probably in that latter category, whereas uh, Stephen Harper is, is probably more in the first. <laughs> although We're not going to have a party. <laughs> Apparently we are. I, I, w- I, I will criticize Harper on that front and say that I think that he's really suppressing uh, that and he's not really showing himself the man of ideas that I think he probably is, and he's trying to play himself more into that second category, which is unfortunate, I think, for the debate in this campaign. Well, I think that there is a... A deeper reason than partisan clashes, why vision does not form part of a typical election campaign, and indeed why vision doesn't form part of the typical public policy discourse today. And in part it's because we are now dealing with a a, a sceptical, and a rightfully sceptical population, who has become accustomed to seeing high words casting a very long shadow over low deeds. But more importantly than that, I think the nature of leadership, and the, uh, the nature of the way through which vision is articulated and projected into society, has changed dramatically from the era in which those crackly quotes were, play- were played. Um, for myself, when I think about my political heroes, uh, people like Martin Luther King Jr., like Mahatma Gandhi, or like, like Lester Pearson, these were great men of great ideas and great vision who were able to inspire an entire generation of people to follow them towards a, the undiscovered land of a promised country. But it doesn't take away from their greatness in, as individuals to say that the nature of society has now changed. And I don't think that the average person wants simply to huddle in the shadow of one great man anymore. What we want is to find is to have political leaders who help to empower us so that we can ourselves exercise meaningful responsibility of the course of national affairs. So that raises a question. If we feel as a nation that a vision is missing in our politics, is it really missing in our politics or is it missing within ourselves? I think I want to take, I want to take up from what Akash said and, 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 and continue along that line. I agree that the time of the great leader is gone now and that we have great leadership among us 
all among us. And we see this in lots of social movement organizing, right? Is that it's a different notion of leadership, which says that a lot of people with great talent are excluded from institutions of power, and we need to open up access to those people. And vision, you see, the vision never came from the politicians. It always came from the movements. You know, Tommy Douglas is the person we think of when we think of Medicare, but Medicare was really, the idea of Medicare came from movements fighting for health care. But uh, he harnessed it. Yes, he harnessed it and he symbolized it. Similarly with Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was part of a movement. I think now we're going to see a different kind. We're in a transition, I guess. Mm -hmm. We're going to see a different kind of uh, visionary movements which don't rely on the great man. I mean, usually it's been a great man, not a great woman. Adam, you mentioned woman. something earlier, too. You talked about how we're basically content. And mm -hmm. I, I'm wondering if, if true vision also comes in a time of greater crisis. Mm -hmm. it, it does in, in many cases. Not always, but if you think of people like on the right, I'll, I'll reference again Thatcher, uh, who came to power after the winter of discontent in England when, of course, things were happening like uh, the garbage wasn't being collected, uh, the morgues were shut down, bodies were decaying on the street. Uh, Ronald Reagan in 1980, the U.S. was in decline at that time. So when things are bad, uh, there tends to be a greater uh, opportunity for visionaries to come to the forefront. But I just want to continue on from what Judy said. I think she raised some really good points there. And uh, one of them that, uh, that's key, I think, is that politics, in, 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 in partisan politics, it's just such a short-term game now. Uh, with the 24-hour media cycle, it always has been short-term, but it's even more so today, and it's difficult to really get a vision out there. And I think that's why so much vision and so many of the good ideas are now coming from the private sphere. Okay, but the problem is that in the past, political parties have served the function to take those ideas from what I call social movements, you call the private, and bring them into politics. Today, that's not happening anymore. There's too big a divide between the political parties and the movements that are generating the ideas because the political parties are so professionalized and so focused on tomorrow mm -hmm. and, and electoral politics, which is, in my view, one of the reasons for the crisis in electoral politics. Even though putting aside the question of strange relationship between political parties and, broadly speaking, political movement, I think that Canadians are indeed so hungry for vision that it, to a certain extent, doesn't even matter what that vision is or where it comes from. When Mike Harris was elected in Ontario in 1995, I don't believe for a moment that it was because there was a seismic shift to the right in Ontario. I think it was because when people are presented with a choice between someone who believes passionately in something with which they disagree and someone who appears to believe in absolutely nothing at all, they will always opt for the person of conscience. Vision in the 21st century, I think, means a willingness to lead public opinion, not just be led by it, and not just pile it back to people what you think they want to hear. I'm going to, ask you, I'm going to ask you all to sit tight. I want to continue this conversation, but we are going to take a break for the news. I am talking with Adam DeFala in our Quebec City studio. He is the co-author of Rescuing Canada's Right. Judy Rebick is the publisher of Rabble.ca and holds the Sam Gindin Chair in Social Justice and Democracy at Ryerson University. She is in Toronto along with Akash Maharaj the former National Policy Chair for the Liberal Party of Canada. I'm Anna Maria Tremonti, and this is The Current. I am joined again, I am joined still by Adam DeFala in Quebec City. He is the co-author of Rescuing Canada's Right. In Toronto, we have Judy Rebick. She's the publisher of Rabble.ca and holds the Sam Gindin Chair in Social Justice and Democracy at Ryerson University. And Akash Maharaj is also in Toronto. He is the former National Policy Chair for the Liberal Party of Canada. So let's begin again. Adam DeFala, let's go back to you. What can be done to get more vision out of our politicians? 
Well, I'd say that the pressure has to come uh, from the outside, and it's going to be awfully difficult, as, as Judy has already uh, mentioned. But I think that there needs to be a greater commitment in this country to what we call private ideas generation, uh, movements outside of political parties that are sort of going to push, push ideas, push vision into political parties. And obviously there's going to have to be leaders who come forward to champion them. Uh, time will tell whether there will be or not. But I really do think the pressure has to come from the outside, from uh, social movements, as Judy would say, uh, from, from think tanks, uh, speaking from a right-wing perspective, and organizations outside the partisan sphere. Akash, having seen how things work from the inside of the Liberal Party, how realistic is that? Well, I'm, I'm not prepared to give up on political parties and the role of political parties in a modern democracy. Um, I think that there is a great deal of nobility in public service and that um, to, to abdicate our responsibility as political parties to say that we're going to give up this role to private organizations would be a, a terrible mistake. I do think that... Um, in order for political parties, my own in included, to play a, a role that is worthy of our democracy, there has to be an end to the culture with that pervades within political parties that equates dissent with disloyalty. And indeed, I should go so far as to say that in, for every thinking person, dissent where it is merited is not merely a right, it is a responsibility. Each of us um, in this discussion come from very different political perspectives, but I'm sure that each of us, if forced to choose, we choose our conscience before our politics and our country before our party. And I think it's time that political parties recognize that as a virtue, not a vice. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that in all of the parties, uh, thinking people, critical people often get marginalized. I think that the big prob one of the big problems we have is that it's not just during elections, but all the time in political parties because of the nature of the political system, uh, that with the electoral system that we have, that the idea of generating new ideas and debating and discussing new ideas, which of necessity is going to be, uh, there's going to be dissent because you're, you're breaking new ground, is completely and totally discouraged by the current system. But you know as well as I do, when there's a little bit of dissent, we in the media jump all over. And I wonder what you think. How does the media or does the media get in the way of political Oh, vision? totally. The media totally gets in the way of it. First of all, because of the gotcha politics of the media. So as soon as somebody makes a mistake, you know, they're on it. Like I remember... You know, I think Jack Layton, for example, is someone who has vision and is someone who has passion. But the minute he says something from his heart that isn't on the script, the media is on him. I have a little bit of a tape here that I want to play. Although the news media may subvert visionaries, the entertainment media put them on a pedestal. So I want you to have a listen to a few of these clips from the big and the little screen because it appears Hollywood has no trouble churning out the populist political visionary. Senator, why this new campaign style? Why this new manner of dress and speech? The use of obscenity. Obscenity? Well, my friend, if uh, you weren't already rich at the start, that, that, that situation sucks because the, the richest mother in five of us is getting 98% of it. And every other mother in the world is left to wonder where we went with it. Obscenity? Nah, that's the real obscenity black folks living with every day is trying to believe a motherfucking word Democrats and Republicans say. Obscenity? I'm J. Billington Bullworth and I've come to say the Democratic Party's got some shit to pay. It's going to pay it in I always get a great kick out of that part of the Declaration of Independence. Now, you're not going to have a country that can make these kind of rules work if you haven't got men that have learned to tell human rights from a punch in the nose. That's pretty important, all that. 
It's just the blood and bone and sinew of this democracy that some great men handed down to the human race, that's all. But of course, if you've got to build a dam where that boy's camp ought to be to get some grass to pay off some political army or something, lots of different things. Oh, no. If you think I'm going back there and tell those boys in my state and say, look, now, fellas, forget about it. Forget all this stuff I've been telling you about this land you live in is a lot of hoods. This isn't your country. It belongs to a lot of James Taylors. Oh, no, not me. And anybody here that thinks I'm going to do that, they got another thing coming. My task is not to fulfill the legacy of a man. I have been entrusted with continuing the legacy of a nation. Madam President, will you fight to keep the base open? I've agonized over it. And that's why the Commission on Closures is independent. Their recommendations are above personal feelings and politics. I'm not going to play favorites from this office, not even for my hometown. Government can be a place where people come together and where no one gets left behind. No one. Who writes that stuff? Okay, we just heard from the movies and the television shows. Okay, Bullworth. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, Commander-in-Chief, and then the West Wing. Now, to get an inside look at how political visionaries are crafted for the small screen, we're going to go to Hollywood North, actually. And uh, Chris Haddock is the series creator, the writer and executive producer of the popular television dramatic series Da Vinci's Inquest, which has now morphed into Da Vinci's City Hall, and we reached him at home in Vancouver. Hello. Good morning, Anna-Marie. It seems that you have managed to create on television what we are discussing today, something Canada's political class seems unable to create in the real world, and that is politics with vision and politicians as visionaries driven by principles and ideals. Where did you find the inspiration for Da Vinci? Well, the, you know, that's uh, probably a collective inspiration for many people and many, uh, you know, experiences I've had over. But primarily, you know, uh, that was uh, greatly influenced by uh, Larry Campbell, now Senator Larry Campbell, who was coroner when I met him and morphed into head coroner and then, of course, mayor. Uh, and I, I've learned a great deal just uh, watching and uh, sort of being eavesdropping on some of his, uh, his own political education. So I've, I've picked up a little few tips, but I've been a lifelong sort of political dilettante, I guess. And what are the key qualities that da Vinci has that you took from Campbell and that you kept working with in order to create this, this personality who is so likable? I was actually looking for a Canadian character that represented more the Canadian in, uh, characteristics uh, uh, that I knew of a bunch of you know people that I knew and admired in, in Canada, rather than of what is often presented to us as Canadian qualities of humility and, and and so on. And I was looking for a character who was just a real uh, you know he was a real fighter and a scrapper and uh, really was not afraid of taking on uh, the establishment or, or in hockey terms going into the corner and raising an elbow. I, I was really looking forward to somebody that could uh, scrap. I still think that that's one of the primary uh, reasons why he's a popular character is because he he takes no lip but he gives a lot of it. And I think that people uh, like to see themselves represented like that. Uh, and I think that's a great quality. He's a guy that's willing to sort of stand on his own two feet and not afraid of taking on all comers. So mm -hmm. I think that that's a key thing. Spontaneity is something that I create on uh, on the show and have time to create it. <laughs> Spontaneity know. is something you create. I like yeah. that. <laughs> well, um, you know, those are the things that make it so much easier to create a, a likable character where you can control circumstances where in the media today, if you're a politician, you're just being shotgunned from every angle, that it depends increasingly on your supporting cast to, you know, to defend you or, or, or share some of the heat. Well, how would you advise Canada's politicians to recapture that which they seem to have lost? 
you, you have to control your image. Uh, unfortunately, I wish it would, could be that people could stand on their uh, on their own two feet and just uh, respond that way and not be manipulated. But there's a manipulation editing process that goes on in the media that kind of prevents some of that. You have to watch your back. So I think what it is is assembling a really good team of handlers around you, number one, and advisors who, as increasingly politicians are, you know, forced to center stage and probably allowed less time to study the problems and, and some of the things that they have to do is that they're often being fed stuff. So I think the number one, upgrade the quality of, of handler. And uh, I'm, I'm, I've been surprised in the past by, you know, how, how, how politicians are sometimes nailed in the media. And I, I put it on right on the handlers of saying, man, you never should have put that guy in that situation. But also I think the recapturing is that uh, people do have to find... Uh, find themselves and say, wait a minute, uh, wait a minute, I'm going to speak my mind here and, and, and take the chances that uh, I will maybe be able to make that connect with the, uh, the greater voting public, the audience. Well, Chris Haddock, thanks for your thoughts today. Thanks very much, Anna-Marie. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Chris Haddock is the series creator, the writer and executive producer of both Da Vinci's Inquest and now Da Vinci's City Hall. Well, Adam, um, in Quebec City, you couldn't, I, I don't know how you were reacting to all of the uh, movies that we heard earlier, too, but they were kind of smiling in here. Uh, is this kind of visionary, the stuff of fiction? There's some reality that you can draw from here? Well, somewhat. Uh, I mean, I, I basically agree with, with what's just been said by, by Chris Haddock. I mean, it's, it's extremely difficult nowadays with the way that politics has gone with the media, as we were talking about earlier, to have this type of, of person who's really going to go out and say things that are bold and provocative and potentially controversial because they're going to get jumped on. And uh, if I can pick up on one thing that Chris did say that I disagree with, it's that uh, you have to get yourself some really good handlers. I think that um, <laughs> handlers are one of the big problems in politics today because they're not allowing our leaders to be themselves. They're sort of molding our leaders into these figurines, these puppets. And I think that's one of the problems and one of the reasons we don't have a lot of vision out there is because they're not allowing the leaders to really be themselves. I think that um, if more politicians spoke and rap and had sweeping soundtracks behind them, that we would perhaps have a different view of things. <laughs> there is a difference, though, between eloquence and vision. And with a cynical and jaded population, I think we've reached a juncture in history where people mistrust those who are overly articulate. There's a sense that you must be having me on. And indeed, our actions as political actors speak far more eloquently about our values and our intentions than empty rhetoric or well-rehearsed well cants. I think as well, though, that, that many of these fictional characters were still of the old mold of, um, of one great person who will rally the masses to them and will do what is best in the national interest. And this, I think, fails the test of a modern democracy. People don't want, speaking of myself, I, I don't want to abdicate my judgment and my responsibility for my country to a, a semi-messianic figure because that person is just as likely as I am to, to have feet of clay. And the greatest guarantor of liberty in modern society is to have... A, is to have a large, well-engaged and sceptical population standing between its leaders and the levers of power. The wisdom of the society, and indeed the vision of the society, lies in the many, not the few, and certainly not in the one. I, I want to uh, play another piece of tape uh, to look for another source of visionary inspiration. We thought we might take a turn to the world of business, and I spoke earlier with Carol Stevenson, who is the former CEO of Lucent Technologies Canada. She is now the dean of the University of Western Ontario's Ivy School of Business. We actually reached her on vacation in Costa Rica. 
Good morning. You have said that companies, corporations, and the business sector in general, whether acknowledged or not, are playing a major role in shaping our society. How does that mesh with the need for a vision? Well, I am a strong believer that the intersection of the public sector and the private sector are absolutely mandatory for a terrific country uh, to work. You need a great economy. That is enabled by great companies. That's enabled by great government. It's not good enough to just stand back and point a finger. What you have to do is get involved at an early stage and help shape and help the understanding of what the industry is. And likewise, we need more government leaders to really listen to what business has to say and how to shape a a better country. But you're really saying that a a business uh, leader has to have a vision that goes beyond a profit margin. Absolutely. I think everyone's vision has to be something more than just a bottom line or a particular stance on health care. It has to be something much larger and something that's much more inspirational. I want to ask you a little bit, in in some of your writing, you've actually quoted um, two academics who have looked at um, leadership qualities in in business leaders, and and you you quote them as talking about um, leaders who are visionary are able to point to intense, often traumatic, always unplanned experiences that transform them and become uh, the source of their distinctive leadership abilities. That's right. Often there is something that has made an impact on a person, which has been kind of the critical moment that has caused them to think, reflect, and then act. Um, Not always, but certainly I have seen um, examples of where, you know, just something has happened and it has all sort of come together and people will take a stand and have courage to take that stand and will drive forward with it. So I, I think people get somewhat disillusioned if they're thinking that people are just running in order to stay in power. You hear so much about uh, we have to do this to stay in power. Well, it's not about in power. <laughs> it is about that vision. It's about that dream. It's about, you know, how do I inspire people to follow me to make it a better, uh, a better country. And so really what you're talking about with business visionaries are what you would look for for a political visionary, I think. That's absolutely correct. The same qualities that we're looking for in leaders, uh, it really doesn't matter what they're leading. Uh, One of the things that they say in business is uh, no longer are managers uh, managing people. They're really, they are leaders who are inspiring people to be leaders themselves. And that's what makes the business successful. Uh, and I think that would be the same uh, in the political environment. We're looking for leaders who can not just win votes, but leaders who can inspire us to become leaders ourselves, to do things that will improve the country, the economy, the culture, the arts, and so on. Carol Stevenson, thanks for your thoughts today. Okay. Enjoy You're Costa welcome. Rica. <laughs> I will. I'll talk to you again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Carol Stevenson is the former CEO of Lucent Technologies Canada. She's now the dean of the Ivy School of Business at the University of Western Ontario. Carol Stevenson's point that that what she looks for in a business leader in terms of vision is what she would look for in a political leader in terms of vision. Is there something else we can learn from business? Is there there something about leadership that we can transfer? Well, I I think leadership is the same in whatever sphere. And I think leadership has to do with vision and being able to inspire people. That's not the same as management. That's a whole different set of skills. I do leadership training courses. And there's different kinds of leadership. So one kind is the kind of the one we think of, the type A leader, who's the great man leader. But there's many other kinds of leaders, like Mahatma Gandhi, for example, was a leader who led by example. 
So I think that we have to break from this notion of one kind of leadership, which is the great man leader, which I think most business leadership thinks of. What do you think, uh, Adam? Democracy. Well, I want to disagree a little bit with, uh, with Judy and Akash on this whole notion of, of what is the leadership of today and tomorrow. I, I kind of still adhere to this great man or woman uh, model of leadership. I think that the lesson of history is that it's really one person, one great person that can really change a society, change a country, lead a movement. And I think, uh, I think of Thatcher, for example. Thatcher is probably my, uh, the, my greatest uh, hero or heroine, I should say, in, in, in politics, because I think she really epitomized this idea that it's really a person thing. It's, it's the person that motivates the people and carries them carries the people with them. And I think Canada is completely lacking that kind of leader, and I think people want one. I think it, it's certainly the case that one person can change the world, but one person changes the world by inspiring a vast numbers of other people to, uh, to follow them. And I think what inspires people today is different from what inspired them in the past. Looking at the business model, if there is one element of a successful CEO that I think is transferable to a successful prime minister or a successful political leader, it is that this is someone who is able to convince people to slough off a tyranny of low expectations. In the business world, it's someone who's able to persuade his or her um, colleagues, co-workers and employees that it's possible to make more money this year than last year. Mm -hmm. In the political context, it means that you're able to convince people that it's worth suspending their disbelief and worth putting aside the easy path of cynicism to become involved in politics. I, I want to pick up on something Adam just said, too, because there is a cost for being a visionary. Margaret Thatcher was unceremoniously dumped by her own party, of course, in the end. Um, and before we wrap up, I want you to listen to a brief clip from the playwright and freelance writer and the Globe and Mail columnist Rick Salutin about what he sees um, as the double-edged sort of, of vision. I find myself more and more sympathetic to the, to the first George Bush, who said he had trouble with the vision thing. He could just smell that there was a lot of hype about it. It has the ring of salesmanship right now. I would be, uh, I would be happy to settle for intelligence and integrity. And what you really want is not somebody who can yap at you with their great vision, but who will respond intelligently and with a certain amount of humanity to the utterly unexpected things which are normal in the course of history. Let me give you an example. When the Bolsheviks came to power in Russia, they had as much or more of a vision than anyone had ever had. And almost the first thing that Lenin did as leader of the Bolshevik party was he looked around at the devastation in Russia and said, what this country actually needs is a little capitalism. Uh, and that was responding to the situation. It certainly didn't come out of the vision that he had articulated for uh, many years before that. I think Stalin was the man with the vision and not a very bright fellow. So he got this vision and he just um, adhered to it with rigidity and completely ignored human beings and historical considerations. And that was the disaster, I think. Vision plus rigidity equals ideology. So in a sense, the more, vis the more your vision clouds out the reality, the more dangerous you can be. Okay, that's uh, Rick Salutin, <laughs> columnist for the Globe and Mail. Uh, Adam, what do you think? Is there a danger to vision? Uh, I think it obviously depends who is who is uh, talking about the vision. If it's uh, Stalin or Lenin, then yes, I think it's very dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps Thatcher. <laughs> or my carrot. <laughs> okay, we all got our, we heard the partisan digs in here. Go ahead, keep discussing. <laughs> it, it, it has to. I mean, it has to be positive, and I think that's one thing that uh, we talked a lot about in our book is that on the right in Canada, especially, there's been a lack of uh, of positive 
vision for the country. There's been a lot of harping about what's wrong with Canada. There's just not a lot of people talking about positive vision for the future. And I think that, uh, that that's, uh, that's a real key. I think the difference between an ideologue and a visionary is that an ideologue is willing to foist um, his or her vision upon an unwilling population. Um, and I think the fact that it's, it's possible to cite um, people who are ideologues does not argue against people who are, who are visionaries. When I think about the great visionaries in Canadian history, just to look at, at Canada rather than um, the Russian Revolution, for example, I think of people like Laure, who in the midst of terrible ethnic strife, nevertheless made Canada a genuine partnership between Anglophones and Francophones, and the world is a better place for it. I think about people like Pearson, who in the throes of the Cold War created international peacekeeping, and the world is a better place for it. I think about Trudeau, who um, at a time of mass migration made Canada the first multicultural state, and the world is a better place for it. Inevitably, future generations will look back on us and will ask, with all the power, with all the money, with all the advantages you had, what did you do to make the world a better place? And I think we will only be able to hold our heads high before the judgment of history if we're able to say that despite the cynicism that pervades, despite the skepticism about vision and visionaries, despite the easy path of resigning oneself from the political process, we were nevertheless the generation that helped to transform our country into the vision of a truly realized liberal democracy. Yeah, I, I think Rick is getting con vision confused with dogma. Uh, that's what he's doing, and so the I, and it's kind of upsetting, actually, that that he's throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as you say. That the idea that having big ideas uh, is a trap. I, I think just the opposite. Vision is not about dogma. It's about uh, seeing the big picture. It's about uh, seeing how the world. Dreaming. It's a it's a dream. Vision is a dream about how the world can be a better place. And as Humans, if we don't have a dream for a better world, then we can't inspire people to, to fight for a better world because it's not easy to do it. It's, it's joyful, but it's also painful. And so I think that that's what vision is. It's a way to inspire people to make the world better. And that's why we need it in politics, desperately need it in politics. We're going to end on that note. Thank you all for having this discussion today. Thank you. Thank you. Adam DeFala is the co-author of Rescuing Canada's Right. Judy Rebick is the publisher of Rabble.ca and holds the Sam Gindin Chair in Social Justice and Democracy at Ryerson University. And Akash Maharaj is the former National Policy Chair for the Liberal Party of Canada. You're listening to The Current on CBC Radio 1. I'm Anna Maria Tremonti. <laughs>